this week we'll pick up from verse 26 to 31 to see the polar opposite of not responding right to the love of God. Okay? So quick, who can you read 26 to 31 of Hebrews 10? 26 to 31. For if we sin willful after we have received the knowledge of the truth, and there no, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful expectation of judgment and fury indignation which will devour their adversaries. Anyone who has rejected Moses' law dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. Of how much worse punishment do you suppose will he be will he be taught worthy who has trampled the son of god underfoot counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified a common thing and insulted the spirit of grace for we know him who said vengeance is mine i will repeat says the lord and again the lord will judge his people it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Amen. Amen. Okay, so the question then is what's going on in these few verses, right? Because considering the amount of assurance that the writer has shown us in the preceding verses that goes with salvation, he's, he's punctuating here with a severe warning, like he's using the most extreme imagery possible to show that there is a danger and he's using we to indicate that this danger um like christians the christians he's writing to are not exempt from this danger because we said that there are many ways you can approach verses like this in the book of hebrews some people have um, a theological worldview where they believe that it's not possible to lose your salvation no matter what right because if that happens then that means that god is not omnipotent or he's not all powerful. Why can't the one who gave you salvation not secure it to the very end? Right. So they they hold such a view, which you can argue um, can be defended from various scriptures. And when they come to verses like this, they force verses like this to fit into that view. Right. But we've always said that it doesn't matter what you believe before you come to the scriptures. When you come to the scriptures, for for the scriptures to bless you, you have to lay aside that your coherent worldview and first embrace what the scripture is saying, right? If you notice what the scripture is doing here, and maybe when I'm done explaining to you some, you can help confirm me if what I'm saying makes sense. What the scripture is presenting here is a legal problem, right? And it's not even telling you that something definite will happen. It's just asking you to consider the legal implications of willfully continuing sin after receiving the knowledge of the truth, right? Willfully continuing sin. So this is not, um, this is not falling into temptation. This is not struggling with sin. This is a determination to, to violate, to violate the standards of God. The backdrop to this is that we said that when you look at the law of Moses or what we call the old covenant, it contained three parts of it. And one of, one of it is immutable, and that is the moral law, or what you might call the Ten Commandments, even though there were more aspects to the law that were moral in nature, 
than the Ten Commandments. And we said that the moral law of God is not ceremonial. It doesn't depend on ceremonies. It's not dispensational. It doesn't depend on dispensations. It is immortal. It is unbreakable because it reveals the nature of God. So thou shalt not commit adultery, for example, or thou shalt not lie. It doesn't matter if you are under the mosaic system or if you are under um, the system of grace. It is still God's intention that adultery or lying is not part of your existence because that's the nature of God, right? That's what the moral law um, expounds. And we said that because the moral law is immutable, you cannot really break the moral law of God, right? What happens is that the moral law breaks you because the moral law describes the very nature of reality, right? It describes the very principles that are the heart of life itself. So if it was possible to break them, life would crumble. No, a way to understand it is like the example I always use of the law of gravity. You can deny the law of gravity, but you cannot break it. So you can go to the top of a five-story building and decide to break the law of gravity by jumping off without a parachute. <laughs> You're going to realize that rather than um, breaking the law, the law will break you, right? And so it was necessary. It is necessary that anyone who comes to God must come on the basis of an impeccable righteousness, which we saw. And we saw that only Christ fulfilled that righteousness. Right, because when Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5 that no part of the law will pass away until all of it is fulfilled, the moral law was included in that. That Christ was the perfect fulfillment of the standard of God. And that is why he gained a righteousness that could then be credited to everyone who believes in him. Right, so like we said last week, God has found the man that he is pleased in. You know, that was always a testimony that God wanted men to hear about Christ. That this is the man I'm pleased in. I found him. So anything that you're going to do with me henceforth is going to be through this man, right? We said that last week. So the, the dilemma then, did someone say something? Okay, quick. The, the dilemma then is that you can conclude that, right? On the basis of what Christ has done, you can conclude that the moral law has been done away with, right? Because Christ said that there is no part of the law that will pass away until all of it is fulfilled. So you can conclude that even the moral law is not just a ceremonial law or the civil law of Moses. You can conclude that even the moral law has no power to break a believer who violates it. Because that believer is operating by higher righteousness. You know, you can come to such a conclusion. So therefore, it doesn't matter how much sin that a believer engages in, his righteousness is in Christ, and that's what matters. What the writer is saying is that holding such a position creates a legal problem. He's not saying directly that you're going to lose your salvation, because like we've seen, there are many people who have not lost their salvation, but who are living in unbelief and in disobedience, but it's asking you that before you take such a position, you need to consider a few things. The first is that Jesus is not going to die again for sins. So if it is true that Jesus came 
like first john chapter 3 tells us verse 8 that for this reason the son of god was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil and the works of the devil in that context is sin so there's no other coming of christ that can deal with sin more than the first coming of christ so that if my life insists that to live above sin is not possible then i'm annulling the work of christ and he's saying that there's there's no other provision god does not have there's no other prophecy that talks about another provision for sins and so if there is no other provision for sins the only logical thing that remains is a fearful expectation of judgment and fiery indication and then he lists a three count charge right from verse 29 first of all he does a comparison he said anyone who rejected moses's law dies without mercy this was a physical death right that he's talking about that in moses's law which was temporal which was weak that as long as there were two or three witnesses for anyone who um, disregarded and violated Moses' law, there was physical death. And I was asking you to consider, of how much worse punishment do you suppose he will be worthy? The first count charges, who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, right? So it's saying that maybe because, remember we said believing is not so much a creed, but a deed. That I can say that I believe something, but my life denies the things that the thing that I believe. So that even though I say that Jesus is the Son of God, but I refuse through my actions to acknowledge that the life of God is possible in human flesh. <laughs> I'm trampling on the Son of God. I'm essentially saying that the very thing that Jesus came to put on display is not possible. That's the first count charge. The second count charge is that he has counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified a common thing. Oh, that this blood that was costly, you know, we always say that grace is so easy. You and I can pray so easily. Perhaps you and I can even prophesy so easily. All of it is because it was so expensive. And that the one who does not recognize that price, that one is counting the blood of Christ as a common thing. And then the final count charge is that such a lifestyle that is willfully, deliberately, continuously embracing a pathway of sin is insulting the spirit of grace. That part of your salvation experience, like we said last week, is that God releases his spirit into you. And that's what regenerates you. The spirit gives you new appetites, new motivations that for you to perpetuate in willful sin as a believer you would have to shut down the holy spirit in you the voice of your conscience you have to shut down every prompting of the spirit of god you have to continually disregard it and the charge is that it's an insult to the spirit of grace so the writer is asking us to look now, you may not also understand why this is so much of a legal problem, right? Until you see what we've been saying before, which is the nature of our salvation. That our salvation was substitutionary, right? Jesus didn't only die for us. He died as us. It was an exchange, right? That, that the life I now live 
it's it's like a I wouldn't use the term a borrowed life, but it's like I came back to life because my sentence was death. So as far as God is concerned, everything that I have as as my ambition, as my goal, <laughs> all of it is dead because if I was left to myself, my sentence is death. But on account of what Christ did, I now have a life to live so that logically or even legally, the only life that I can live that is worthy of the purchase of redemption is the life of faith, is the exchanged life. Remember, we looked at this in Galatians 2. Does that make sense to you? It's almost like someone is accused of a crime, right? And then someone who has a family, a man, let's say man A, is accused of a crime, right? And then man B somehow pays the penalty for man A's crime. And man B dies. And then the judge says, you know what? Legally, the price has been paid, so you can go. You see, man, man A, if he's reasonable, no longer has a life. Because whatever life he could have had ended when he committed his crime. Because death was the penalty. If he's reasonable, he's now supposed to take up the life that man B should have lived. So that if instead of taking up the life that man B should have lived, he begins to persecute the children of man B. The writer is saying, of how much sorrow punishment shall it be? Now I need to pause here and ask us if what I'm saying makes any sense, right? Do you see the dilemma that is presenting for us? And what are your thoughts? Okay. So what the, what the scripture is saying is basically is that there is a prescribed life that the gospel has, right? That God didn't just save you for, he for heaven. Like we always say, if he saved you for heaven, he might as well have ended your life on earth and taken you to heaven when he saved you. He saved you because there's a life he has in mind that you should live. And it's a life of faith. So it's possible that you can, you can, you can look back and say, wow, look what Christ has done for me. I'm free to run my own agenda. Well, there is something called reward. But on another spectrum, it's possible to say, I'm not only free to run my own agenda, I'm free to actually violate the laws of God and still claim to have a standing with God. He's saying that such a position, if it is willful, deliberate and continued, it, it poses a great legal dilemma. And it is this legal dilemma that makes it very clear that it's possible that someone who believed can lose their salvation when they trample underfoot the Son of God. They count the blood of the covenant by which they were sanctified a common thing and insulted the spirit of grace. And then he now tells us something about the justice of God. That, you know, like when people come to scriptures like this and, you know, refuse to accept the obvious thing that it is saying, it's because in our normal human experience, we don't really experience absolute justice. What we experience is relativist justice, you know. Someone can actually kill someone, and if he has a good enough lawyer, like he, his crime is watered down, it's still classified as he killed somebody, whether it is murder or homicide or whatever technical names are. But his crime, 
can be watered down, done, watered down enough that if he has a good lawyer and sometimes enough money, he may never even save time for who he killed. But he's telling us that the justice of God is severe. He says, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. And just in case you think he's writing to unbelievers, he's saying that judgment also is for the Lord's people. And he says it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. What he's doing here, even though it sounds um, gory and fearful, is that he's trying to dissuade them, his, his writers, from the problem of drifting, right? That we said is at the heart of the problem that the Jews that he's writing to were having. Because in the face of heavy persecution, there was a likelihood not the likelihood, it was easier to be out of faith than to be in faith because of persecution. The persecution was real. It affected families, it affected people's agenda. You know, someone can tell you, I have business plans. Are you telling me that because I accepted Jesus, I may have to let go of those plans? And for these Jews, they had an easy way out of persecution. All they needed to do was to go back to the synagogue. And nobody in the synagogue was going to accept them back in until they renounce their faith in Christ. And he's telling them, he has told them throughout the letter that what you have is so much more. Do not let it slip. But also, if you think that you can play both sides, consider the legal implications of that. And obviously, the writer has stated in Hebrews chapter 6 that he's persuaded of better things of them, right? And I can say that I'm persuaded of better things for us as well, which is why we're going to continue the reading and we're not going to stop here. And the question tries to answer, what kind of life then is it that ensures, what kind of life that um, can you live? What kind of weapons can you have that will ensure that apostasy will not be on the table for you. Instead, the only thing that will be on the table is, is, is continuous experiences, a higher measure of experience of the love of God. So we have seen already that the life that pleases God is the life of faith, right? The life that lays down its own agenda, its own ambition, and latches on to God and says, I'm here for you. I'm here not to live out the desires of, of the Adamic nature in me, but I'm here to live out the desire of the nature of Christ that I've now received. It is the life that practically says what Jesus asks us to pray, your kingdom come and your will be done. So when you decide, like we have all decided to live that life, right? The writer now begins to present us to us some of the tools that empower you for that life. So can you read for us, Kweku, um, from verse 32 to verse 37? I recall the former days in which after you were illuminated, you endured a great struggle with sufferings, partly while you were made a spectacle both by reproaches and tribulations, and partly while you became companions of those who were so treated. For you had compassion on me in my chains and joyfully accepted the plundering of your goods. 
knowing that you have a better and an enduring possession for yourselves in heaven. Therefore, do not cast away your confidence, which has great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that after you have done the will of God, you may receive the promise. Okay, verse 37. For yet a little while, and he who is coming will come and will not tarry. Verse 38. Okay. Yeah, 37 is good for now. Okay, so thank you, Kweku. Right? So the writer lists two weapons of faith, the kind of faith that is persistent, that is fruitful, that is productive, that stays burning. He lists two important weapons because up until this point, he has presented faith, right, as the simple antidote to drifting, right, and to dullness and to everything else that he has listed is a danger in this letter. And now what he's, what he's about to do, like, you know, we're about to go to the famous Hall of Faith or Hall of Fame of Hebrews chapter 11. What he's about to do is to expand on what faith looks like in practice. Of the, of the things that empower faith, right? Of what it means to live out a life of faith. And in the scriptures that we have read from verse 32 to verse 37, there are two critical weapons of faith here. I think the second one is a bit more obvious because it arrives later on, right, in the verses. But what is the first? Or maybe there are more than two, and I'm only seeing two, right? So what do you think? What are the weapons of faith that keeps faith burning? Not that births faith, because the people he's talking to already have faith, but that keeps faith burning and fruitful and productive in the hands of God. Okay, I think endurance is one of them. Okay, endurance is the second one. Um, endurance only shows up from verse 35, right? Or 36. Do you see something before that? Confidence, courage. Courage, okay. Where do you see courage? That's 35. Yeah, 35, confidence. Therefore, do not cast away your confidence, which has great reward. Okay. Yeah, I want to tie what you just said to the first thing that stands out, or at least that stood out to me when I read it. And the reason it stood out to me is because if you remember when we did the book of Jude, where we're battling with this same problem of apostasy and contending with the faith, Jude also, when Jude began to give them weapons against apostasy, weapons against false teachers, it was the first one he listed. And that is the word remember, recall, recall, because he says, remember the former days. It's as though there is a memory that the one who has faith or who lives by faith needs to operate by in order for their faith to always be burning, to always be on the front burner. It says, remember, Jesus told us that this ministry of remembrance is so critical that it is one of the core ministries of the Holy Spirit. That when he comes, he will bring to you your remembrance, everything I've said to you, because it is possible that you can have the tools, right, that are supposed to make you full of faith, but you don't remember. 
that you can receive news that shakes your heart and sets you on a journey unless you remember that the promise of God had come to you. Right, that you can receive advice that can send you on a wrong path unless you remember. Unless you remember. So Jesus said the Holy Spirit will bring to your remembrance. In fact, when Jesus instituted the communion, he says, I want you to do this. Not because of why we do it. You know, some people have converted communion into another miracle arena, right? That there's the, there's the what's, what's it called now? There's the mystery of communion, right? That if you take communion, certain things will happen. Because of our very, um, you know, we're going to see what faith means. And in as much as faith involves receiving things from God, that's not the New Testament understanding of faith. That's not where it begins. It is, it is included, yes, by your faith you can receive things, but <laughs> faith at its, at its fundamental is about pleasing God, first of all. Anyway, back to the topic of communion, right? It is true that when you come to the Lord's table and you partake in faith and you lay hold of what Jesus calls this, this, you know, Jesus said, let's digress for a second. Jesus said, this cup, right, is the cup of the covenant, and this bread is my body. Now, depending on what spectrum of Christianity you fall under, some people in the more orthodox settings believe in what we call transubstantiation, right? What that means is that the elements become the physical body of Christ and the, and the physical blood of Christ, right? But Quite obviously, that's not what Christ meant by this, because that's quite absurd. At the time that Jesus was, was giving um, the communion, <laughs> he had his body there and he had the bread. Those two things were very different. Order? Nobody was eating his physical body. So this cannot refer to his physical body. And some people say, which is where we fall under which is the extreme that we fall under, not extreme, which is the end of the spectrum that we fall under as more um, Pentecostals, if you like, um, or not Pentecostals, as Protestants. I think that's, that would be the right opposite. As Protestants, is that, is, that the, is that the bread and the cup represent the body of Christ. And I, I mean, that's better than saying that the bread and the cup is the, is the physical body and the blood of Christ. But it still misses the mark of what this is. Because Jesus didn't say that this represents my blood, right? He didn't say that this represents my body. He said, this is my body. So what is this? <laughs> you know, the reason I'm laughing is that if you're a JavaScript engineer, you may not know what JavaScript is, but it's a programming language. There's a very famous meme in JavaScript that tries to answer the question, what is this? This is a keyword in JavaScript that if you are not <laughs> very enlightened in the ways of programming, you'll be so confused about what this is because this refers to a context. And you know, when I was meditating on it recently, I realized how much this actually explains what Jesus was referring to. Jesus was speaking about a reality, and that reality was domiciled in the spirit. 
It is the reality of the church, the reality of his body. And he says, this is my body. So that coming to the communion table, yes, it involves eating bread and drinking wine. But if that's all you see, then you may not touch what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying that I am about to be poured out. And my life is about to be made available to you in the spirit. And every time you come in my name to partake of what I have achieved for you on the cross, you remember, you remember me. You remember me. That's why Paul said that may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God and the communion of the Holy Ghost, every time you lay hold on who Christ is, every time you come to him on the basis of what his blood accomplished, every time you come to him for the bread that is bread indeed, you remember him. So that as much as we take up the physical element, we keep our eyes on the reality, on this. He says, do it in remembrance of me. I know why I'm taking the time to explain this, because by the time we go to Hebrews chapter 11, we are going to see that for faith to be burning, it needs an altar. It needs a place of remembrance. An altar is primarily a place of exchange, a place of remembrance. That every time you wake up and you kneel by your bed or your couch or you stand to pray, you are provoking this principle of remembrance that is necessary for your faith to thrive. Which is why if you don't pray for three months, something will happen to your faith. <clears throat> right? It's not that God changed or that the promises of God changed or that God is no longer faithful. No is that you there are many things you will not remember you will not remember the writer wants them to recall he says recall the former days in which after you were enlightened you endured a great struggle with sufferings partly while you made a spectacle while you were made a spectacle both by reproaches and tribulations and partly while you became companions of those who were so treated for you had compassion on me in my chains and joyfully accepted the plunderings of your goods knowing that you have a better and enduring possession for yourselves in heaven so you can see that the second principle of faith is endurance but we're going to come to that but to stick to to remembrance the question that was in my head when i was reading this is why did they endure Right. What was it that they knew? What was it that they remembered that made them endure? Does my question make sense? Because it's asking them to remember again. So what was it that they, that they called to mind? That because they had it at the forefront of their mind, they were able to endure. That no amount of spectacle that the enemy made of them prevented them from enduring you see what the holy spirit comes to remind us of is the goal of our faith what is the goal of our faith so if anybody is going to run a race successfully right the person needs to keep the goal in mind if not the person can run offside or the person can run amiss 
Not only does the person need to keep the goal in mind, the person needs to keep the view in reward. Sorry, <laughs> the view in mind. Sorry, the reward in view. God help me tonight. The person needs to keep <laughs> the person needs to keep the reward in view. Remember the goal. Remember the reward. The goal is to be well pleasing to God. This goal could not be accomplished by the works of the law. There was no way that I could be a true worshiper. There was no way that I could satisfy the desire on the heart of God because it's only the man that satisfies the desire on the heart of God that provokes the reward of God, isn't it? And that was what the ceremony of worship was about. And so anyone who's going to run successfully needs to remember the goal. And the goal is to be well pleasing to the Lord. And what is the reward of the goal? The reward, I don't have time to show you in the New Testament that the goal of faith primarily is to please God. Maybe I have time to show you. Maybe I have time to show you one scripture. One scripture. You know the famous scripture that says that if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. All things have passed away. All things have become new. Now that scripture is preceded by some verses that I would like us to look at. The Bible says that for the love of Christ, verse 14 of 2 Corinthians chapter 5, for the love of Christ compels us because we judge like this, that if one died for all, then all died. And then we now judge. So this is the legal implication I was telling you about earlier. We now judge that those who live, <laughs> it's an error for them to live for themselves anymore. Because technically, legally, they're supposed to be dead. So if, if they have a life now, that life is supposed to be sold, supposed to be exchanged, supposed to be, it's supposed to be offered, it's supposed to be laid down. Right? That those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. You know, there's a place where Paul makes it more explicit, right? It is verse 9. He says, therefore, we make it our aim. So this is the goal of faith, right? We make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be well-pleasing with him. If you, I ask God to search me. Why are you doing Bible study? I'm not doing Bible study in hopes that it will become an avenue for fame in ministry. No. If, you know, if you don't make God your unique goal, if you don't make pleasing him your aim, what I found out from studying Jesus' teachings is that you're going to become a hypocrite. Mostly a hypocrite didn't begin like that. A hypocrite just had the wrong goal. And so when the going got tough, he tried to still arrive at the goal. And what he ended up with was something that God could not accept. Because the process will discourage the hypocrite. The only way that you will not be discouraged on the journey is that your goal, the reason you are doing it is to be well-pleasing to him. That's what you need faith for. You know, when we get into the part where faith begins to receive things, you're receiving things is so that you will be well-pleasing to him also. So that just in case there's something you're supposed to receive, 
but you're receiving that thing will not make you well pleasing to him. You reject that thing and your rejecting of that thing, no matter how much it is, will be counted as faith. Because Moses' faith in Hebrews chapter 11 was the kind of faith that also rejected things. You know, our own faith accepts, accepts things. You know, when I was thinking of <laughs> this, my sore throat, I would have to be honest with you. I, I was saying, what if I didn't eat the candy I ate last night after prayer? I feel like this sore throat is tied to that candy. I was like, God have mercy. My faith needs to learn to, to reject <laughs> things. My, my throat wouldn't have been in this condition. But thank God for his mercy. So that the primary goal of faith is to please God. That's the life that makes sense on account of redemption. That's the life that will make you joyful, that will make you content. The Bible says that godliness with contentment is great gain. I'm content to please the Lord. So this is just one verse. But I believe that it holds enough sway to persuade us that the, the primary goal of faith is not to receive something but to be something, to be pleasing to the Lord. Okay? Before we look at the second weapon of faith, um, do you have any thoughts here? Any questions or contributions? Okay, pardon me. Yeah, um, it's very, I don't know how to say whether it's funny or interesting, but whichever, um, I was drawn to a particular scripture today, which is Psalm 103. And I, I remember I just breezed through it like rapidly and the Lord was just causing me to stay focused on that remember, right? And it's mm. interesting how my mind began to connect to other portions of scripture where God was calling people to remember. Mm. And that remembrance, remembrance was on the basis that faith would rise or on the basis that you progress in faith. So it's so interesting how, you know, mm -hmm. it's, uh, and uh, I think when you were explaining it, the line caught. I wanted to, when you asked the question initially, I, I was going to answer saying remembrance and mm. endurance. The network came back and then you were talking about it. I'm <laughs> like, wow, well, I did today. So yeah, <laughs> thank you for Thank you, Sami, for the contribution. Yeah. And like we said, remembrance is powered by an altar. And faith, if remembrance is powered by an altar, then faith is powered by an altar. It doesn't matter if you have the Holy Spirit. If you don't make time to fellowship with him, quality time, your life will be as though it doesn't exist. And this is not an insult or this is not a threat. It's just the way it is, right? Your life will be as though, my life will be as though it doesn't exist. That the Holy Spirit is all of God waiting for us to build an altar of remembrance. That's why Jesus said, do this, do this. He was, he was speaking beyond what was in front of him. Do this in remembrance of me. Let there be a communion between you and me that is unbroken. He says, do it as often as you want. There is no there is there is no there is no um, limitation there is no there is no maintenance seasons where um, there's no access do it as often as you want okay the second weapon of faith is patience 
patience or you can call it process patience or process you know it's it's interesting that when you look at the the verse which is hebrews or the, or the book the chapters that talk about faith the most you'll discover that the things that the book is talking about is not the common things you hear when you hear about faith right but anyway it's very clear it says therefore 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 on account of remembrance do not cast away your confidence because he has a great reward so remember we said what you're supposed to remember is the goal remember the goal when you're tempted to be offended and when you're tempted to quit remember that it was never because of men it was always because of god you don't love men because they are lovable you love men because of god right remember and remember the reward the reward is the glory of god the reward is the glory of god now that glory like jesus said can manifest in earthly goods increasing and glory to god when it does happen but it's not the length and breadth of the reward right it says you need endurance so that after you have done the will of god you may receive the promise for yet a little while and he who is coming will come and will not tarry so the writer is saying that faith by itself needs a cousin or a twin like we said a twin sister or a twin brother that if you're going to live the life of faith you need to be armed with the mind to wait the mindset of patience the reason why patience is such a foundational principle for faith is that faith by its very nature right will be tested that's how faith is that like it's not that your faith is weak that's why it's tested no is that if you're trying to obtain something by faith then the means through which you are obtaining it is a means that will expose you to testing and if you don't know that that is part of the arrangement you may not endure because remember that in scripture in the new testament especially faith is often contrasted with works right and the beauty of works if you like is that works appeal to the natural man because you're saying to him that if you take this ram that is white make sure that the ram doesn't have blemish and you take it to the altar and you give it to the priest you slit the throat that just go home your sins are forgiven it is it is tangible and in the midst of persecution which these jews were facing when you're looking at such a vivid system where the atonement we're talking about is quite visible you can see that okay something is dying and you can see the blood and you can see that it is being sprinkled and you can even argue that it was god who is who instituted this system once and for all because of the because such a system appeals the system of works appeals to the sensuality of man right so it's not a system that calls for patience essentially right like the people who go to native doctors <laughs> they are not going looking for a process if they were looking for a process they wouldn't have gone they're looking for okay what is the price for what i'm looking for if i bring the price can i get it but not so with faith the, the part of faith looks always looks slow at the beginning but it pays great reward and it is patience if your faith is going to win in the end it needs a partnership with patience you know the life of faith opens up many questions 
right? Um, excuse me. I had to clear my throat. The life of faith opens up many questions. Um, the first question is how? And we're going to see that next week when we do the blueprints of faith, right? That's one of the first questions that faith, that life of faith opens, how? How is this going to happen? And the answer to how is simple, is believe. That's all God asks of you. Um, in Isaiah chapter one, verse 18, it says, it says, come, let us reason together, right? Do your sins be as red as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. And if you've tried to preach the gospel and preach that to any normal man, the question that arises is, how can someone who is red like scarlet become white as snow? And yet you say that the system is fair and just. But Jesus said to Martha, I said to you, if only you will believe, you will see the glory of God. So the how of faith, right, is answered by believing. So that's why believing is, goes hand in hand with faith. And friends, believing, like we have seen in the book of Hebrews, is not a passive thing. <laughs> it's, not a, it's not a recital. It's not like school anthem. I believe that Jesus is the son of God. No, it, it, believing is active. Believing affects your life. If it is true that you believe, like we're going to see in Hebrews chapter 11, it adjusts your life, it adjusts your steps, it, it provokes you to be a certain kind of person. So you believe. The second question that faith raises is when? 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 If you look at the life of Abraham, you see that this was the question that got him into trouble in his work with God. That's the question of when. When will it happen? Because there are many times that it is instant. And thank God for those times. And I can tell you, having walked by faith, by the grace of God, that yes, there are many times it is instant. But more often than not, if God wants to make your faith precious, he will give you faith projects that are not instant. And it means that he trusts you with those projects. It means that the reward that's supposed to emerge from accomplishing those faith projects is huge. And so, if your faith is facing the question of when, the answer to the question is patience. And patience is not passive, just like believing is not passive, right? That's what it says here, that do not cast away your confidence. So it's not, it's not just that you are standing and you're just saying, okay, I'm not going to cast away my confidence. It's, do not cast away looks like it's likely that the thing will drift, but you are actively holding on to it. So this is where the confessing part of faith comes in. That it doesn't matter the testimony of my body. It doesn't matter the testimony of my circumstances. I hold on to what God has said. I choose, I choose the path of the righteous. It's waiting is active. It involves the confessions of faith. It involves the fruit of your lips, continually giving thanks to the Lord. It involves most of what you have today as regular faith teaching. It's just that, like we always say, most of those teachings begin from, <laughs> from there rather than from the substance, the activation that happens in the presence of God that even bears faith in the first place. And the final question of faith, you may find more questions, but these are the three that I found most relevant. The final question of faith is why? Right, why? This is the question that Job 
could not find an answer to. And it's not a question we can answer in one minute. Um, I mean, we can, but there's a very likelihood that you're not going to understand it. So just know that there's a question of faith called why. And if you, if you go to the book of Hebrews, you're going to see people who did not receive what you might call breakthrough. You know, some people decided, you know what, if God is not going to save us, we'd rather choose a better resurrection. You, you, you can go to you can go to Hebrews chapter eleven and ask, okay, why did Abel have to die? You know, but faith transcends all of that. The antidote to the why question is to trust. Is to trust, which is why the place of remembrance is necessary for a faith that will be burning. The place of remembrance, okay. Um, any thoughts on that before we read the final few verses for today? Okay. Yes. Um, usually there is this interchange between patience, endurance, and long suffering, right? Um, mm -hmm. Well, the Old Testament was very explicit, you know, by using the term weights. So my question is, in this conversation, is long suffering in view or does it have another expression or is it just a synonym of one of these words? Yeah, thanks for your question. Um, I would say that there is definitely a clear sense in which you can differentiate both, but um, most of the times you are talking about semantics, right? That in this context, they are interchangeable for sure. Because if we take um, long suffering, for example, right? Um, long suffering means to suffer long. What that means is that you need to equip yourself with a mindset to suffer. Because if you don't, you're not going to suffer long. You know, some people don't have such a mindset. And so when something that looks like a contradiction or suffering shows up, it just shakes them completely off their feet. First of all, if you're going to love, if you're going to love and the object of your love is a human being that has the capacity not to love you back, then for your love to be genuine, your love needs to have long suffering as part of it, right? So in that semantic sense, it's different from patient endurance, right? It's different from patience and endurance, right? Which means, and even endurance itself differs from patience because endurance has um, a negative connotation, right? That there are certain things that you are supposed to endure. So for example, we're supposed to endure temptation, right? We're supposed to endure the cross. Sometimes you are not just suffering long, you are enduring. The cross itself is meant to be endured. So for, what I mean by that is God can put you in a, in a context that is not sweet. Maybe you don't like your boss, right? And in your prayers, there's no reason why you should tolerate the situation. It's not that you're trying to love him or you're trying to make him better. Of course, you're supposed to love him as a Christian, but that's not the emphasis of heaven. It's just a cross. It's just a cross. And whenever God gives you a cross, there's an outcome he wants to get from it. Jesus said, take my yoke upon you and learn of me. And he implied there that the learning is not possible unless there's a yoke. So it's a yoke that you're supposed to endure. The alternative of enduring 
things that you're supposed to endure are things that you can escape. That's another way of looking at it. You can decide that, you know what, I'm resigning from this job. I'm going to get another one. <laughs> Meanwhile, in the place of prayer, God may actually be asking you to endure so that a bigger breakthrough can come or just so that his glory can be revealed. So there is a sense in which semantically and technically you can see that long suffering um, has more to do with love. Um, endurance has more to do with a negative situation and patience is, is, is patience, right? But in this context, faith, faith needs the ability to wait. Does that make sense? Sami? Okay. So Kweku, can you read the final few verses for us? We're going to jump into chapter 11. So we'll read from verse, from verse 38 of chapter 10 to verse 7 of chapter 11 as we close. Now the just shall live by faith. But if anyone draws back, my soul has no pleasure in him. For, but we are not of those who draw back to perdition, but of those who believe to the saving of the soul. Verse 1 to verse 7 of chapter 11. Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. For by it the elders obtain the good testimony. By faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God, so that the things which are not seen were not made of the things which are visible. By faith... Abel offered to God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained witness that he was righteous, God testifying of his gifts, and through it, he being dead, still speaks. By faith, Enoch was taken away so that he did not see death and was not found because God had taken him for before he was taken, he had this testimony that he pleased God by faith. But without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is, and he is the rewarder of those who diligently seek him. By faith, Noah, being divinely warned of God, of things not seen, not yet seen, moved with godly fear, prepared an act for the saving of his household, by which he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness, which is according to faith. Yes, thank you. So you might be wondering, how are we going to cover these verses in five, ten minutes? But, <laughs> <laughs> well, because these are the traditional powerhouse verses of faith, you know? Well, next week, I can assure you that we're going to touch on faith even more. But I don't think we have to say too much. We're going to say a bit, but not too much about this, because everything I've said so far lays a good background for us to understand what these verses are saying, right? So the writer summarizes what we've been saying in verse 38 of chapter 10. He says, now, what is now in this context? Now is the context of post-redemption. Now that Jesus has come, now that he has laid down his life, there are a set of people who are called the just. 
which is you and I. We've explained this scripture so many times, right? That the just is supposed to be a contradiction in terms, like considering everything that we have said, that no one can be justified by the works of the law. There is none of us that can do enough good to satisfy God's justice. His justice is broad, is severe, is intense, in that sense. So how come we are the just? The way we became the just was not by any works of the law, but by faith. You see? And our justification, because it is a legal thing, sentences us to a certain kind of life. And that is the life of faith. Friends, there's no other life that God has for you in the Christian life except the life of faith. Meaning, there's no other way God intends to meet your need except by faith. There's no other way God intends to protect you except by faith. Anything that makes you wander outside of the regions of faith is not God. It's as simple as that. This is basic word of God discernment. That you became just by faith. And that has set you on a path. And that path is, is traversed by faith. So that's the life that God has called us to live, friends. That's what Paul was speaking about in 2 Corinthians 5 that we looked at earlier. That we have judged that if he died for all, then we no longer have to, have to live for ourselves. But let us embrace the life of faith. The life of faith is the life of God himself. It's the life that God has for us. It's the idea that God has for us. It's the life that, that, that depends on God. And of course, you know, he took this um, quotation from Habakkuk chapter 2. If anyone draws back, my soul has no pleasure in him. Instead of drawing back, we can press on to more in God. But we are not of those who draw back to perdition, but of those who believe to the saving of the soul. One of the things that the book of Hebrews highlights is the present continuous nature of believing. And it's highlighted perfectly in this final verse of chapter 10, that we believe to the saving of the soul. That's our life. It's a life of believing. We believed at the beginning, and that was how we were regenerated. If our soul is going to experience transformation today, we have to keep believing. We have to hold on to our believing. And at the end of the journey, we are going to step into glory by believing. Does that make sense to us? And now that he has arrived at what you might call the crescendo of his letter, that now, in view of who Christ is, who he is in the heavens, and what he has accomplished, the only pathway is faith. He is now going to show us the hall of faith, that even our fathers, who you might call the elders of faith, or the elders of the Old Testament, everything they were and lived for that gave them a good testimony, it was the same faith. Right. So now it tells us a, the broadly accepted definition of faith. That faith is the substance of things hoped for. The evidence of things not seen. Right. So another word for substance here is realization. So faith is the realization of things hoped for. It is the evidence of things not seen. Now, we don't have time to press this. Hopefully, maybe we can touch it a bit next week. But just to say that 
first of all, there is something that is hoped for, right? And there is something that is not seen. So the things that are not seen are the things that are in the spirit, right? The things that God has made available, right? Our forgiveness, everything that he has described that are part of the priesthood of Christ, these things are not seen. How do we, how do we have assurance of them? It says that faith is that currency of transaction. That's practically what he's saying. That there are things that God has prepared in the heavens. They are great and precious promises that are, that are attributed to salvation. And the chief promise is the promise of a righteousness that is not from your own works. So what language do you use to convert heavenly riches to earthly reality, to earthly experience? He says it is faith. So that faith goes one step further than hope. Faith needs hope. Your hope must be in place and must be the right hope for your faith to be effective in the first place. But faith is what takes hope to the next step. So it's not wrong to believe with hope. Sorry, it's not wrong to begin with hope, right? Meaning that you begin with attempting to understand what are the things I can have hope for on account of what Christ has done. And then when you see those things, the way to make those things yours is by faith. And then he begins to tell us how faith works in verse so verse 2, it says the elders obtained a good testimony. We won't touch that. But it says that faith gives you a certain kind of understanding. That when faith comes, it gives you an understanding. It gives you a logic. And we're going to see more of this when we explore faith in the next chapters, right? It says, by faith, we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God. So just in case you don't have an understanding, it means you don't have faith. Because you might ask yourself, what is it that convinced the woman with the issue of blood that if she can touch the hem of his garment, she'll be healed? The Bible says that on that day, there was a great press, meaning that there were people who were sick, probably in worse conditions than this woman. But Jesus healed her faith because it had an understanding that backed it up. You might ask yourself, what will make um, an old man like Abraham take a well-grown son like Isaac to sacrifice? It's only the book of Hebrews that told us the understanding he had. That when faith comes, it bets an understanding. It becomes a lens through which we look at our current circumstances. It becomes a lens through which we judge our circumstances, through which we judge the faithfulness of God. It's an understanding. Do you have an understanding? And these final three, four verses, between verse four to verse seven, I find them as a summary of the things that we have listed already in towards the ending of chapter 10, which is, how do you live the kind of life that has an understanding, right? How do you, hmm, how do you, should I say contact faith, receive faith? How do you establish the remembrance that powers faith? Now, the stories here, make no mistake, are 
are telling us of the things that faith produced in the lives of these three men, right? Abel, Enoch, and Noah. But in these stories, there is a clear pattern of the kind of posture that will ensure that faith is born in. So the Bible says that by faith, Abel offered to God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain. What made Abel's sacrifice more excellent was that Abel's sacrifice was based on the principle of redemption. Because in the story itself, there was nothing else that separated the sacrifices except that one was a sin offering and the other one was just a fruit offering. And it was clear that after the fall, like we've said, the basis upon which to approach God was the basis of redemption, the basis of substitution. Right? And Cain offered such a sacrifice. Sorry, Abel offered such a sacrifice by faith. And that first principle there is the principle of the altar. That the life, the life that will be burning with faith will need to have an altar of remembrance. A place where you offer yourself. A place where you exchange your ideas for his ideas. You exchange your weakness for his strength. You exchange your, your insufficiency for his all-sufficiency. That when Satan batters you with thoughts and discouragement, let there be an altar that you can, that you can return to and have your faith refilled. Because that place will be the springboard for an enduring faith. And then verse 5 tells us that by faith, Enoch, Enoch walked with God. He was taken away and did not see death. He was not found because God has taken him. But before he left, he gave us a testimony that he pleased God. So this is the next thing that, your, that a productive faith needs to have. A faith that walks with God, that puts pleasing God at the center. Your faith will have to first be selfless for it to meet your need. You know, there is a kind of faith that is all about my need. But Jesus tells us that there are a group of people that, Jesus, that, that the Father is seeking. That some people are seeking God, and that's good. God asks us to seek him. God is seeking other people. That the most effective kind of faith will first of all have to be selfless. The Bible says about Enoch that he had this testimony. He didn't leave us without a testimony. His life was mystical. On one hand, Abel died too young. On another hand, Enoch never died. So you see that most of the metrics that we even use for who is in faith and who is not in faith, God cares about who has the substance. Who has the substance? Right. Enoch had the testimony that he pleased God. That's the testimony he had. So that once you have contacted God, in the place of the altar, you begin the walk of patience, <laughs> the walk of pleasing God and say, Lord, I want to walk before you. I know that this job may not be the best thing right now, but I'm here because of you and my aim is to please you. Faith needs that, that component of patience, of selflessness, of putting God at the center for it to be fruitful. And finally, verse seven tells us that by faith, by faith, Noah, being divinely warned of things not yet seen, he moved, he moved, he moved. Sometimes this can be a weakness in our faith Pentecostal culture. We do everything but move. 
Friends, faith moves. When God speaks, faith moves. Because you can have a robust altar, you can have a life that is pleasing God, but but the cycle is completed by obedience. It's completed by obedience. That 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 your faith can stir things in the spirit. But Jesus said, watch and pray, watch and pray. Let it be that your ears, your eyes are attentive to what the Spirit of God is saying. Where is he sending me? If he's not doing anything, then there's no need to do anything. But he can be leading you. Say, ah, so is seed here, so is seed here. Invest time here. Invest, invest friendship here. Talk to this person. The Bible says that by faith, Noah moved. He moved. Friends, these are the three pillars of a life of faith. And the golden scripture is verse 6. That says, without faith, it is impossible to please God. For everyone who comes to him must believe that he is and that there is reward for diligently seeking him. And that's my prayer, that God will enlarge our faith, that he will give us selfless faith. Yes, that he would strengthen our faith, that our faith will become fruitful and productive and on the front burner, that our relationship with him will thrive that it will indeed multiply and it will produce the desire on the heart of God. And it will produce everything that God has in mind for us. In the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.